Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, uh, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. Before we get into our talk today, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Dave V, Todd A, Gordon S, and Cindy W. Dr. Elizabeth Irvin is our guest today. Elizabeth is Associate Professor, Civil Engineering at the University of Mississippi. For the past 12 years at the university, Elizabeth has been focused on infrastructure-related issues, including energy infrastructure. Elizabeth, we appreciate you coming on. Thanks. So Elizabeth, I wanted to start, just give us kind of a highlights uh, of your background uh, and the work you do at the university. Well, I started off as a first-generation college student, and then I got degrees in civil and mechanical engineering, and um, I also interned in aerospace and nuclear, and then also Department of Transportation. Then I jumped to Pittsburgh and got my PhD up at Carnegie Mellon, and was working for the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Program and the Bettis Atomic Power Laboratory for five years while I was finishing up that degree. And that was a mechanical engineering degree. And right now in the university, I'm running a, the multifunctional dynamics lab, which basically balances the combination of civil engineering, mechanical, computer science, and electrical engineering so that we can work on trying to do infrastructure health evaluation in a way other than just a visual inspection. No, that sounds great. Um, and uh, certainly have some diverse background there and, and certainly have, have, have spent some time with uh, some of the topics we'll certainly discuss today, including nuclear. I want to know what your thoughts are on the energy mix in the United States. What do you think is, is working and, and what isn't working there? It's a tough question um, because it's so politicized right now. And I look at things from, I'm not a, a domestic or foreign policy expert. I look at things as realistic. What's the technology that's out there? I think it would be fantastic to be able to get the um, renewables like solar, hydroelectric, biomass, wind, geothermal, I would love for those to be dominant. However, technically at this time, that's not really possible. Not every place has fun all the time. Not every place has geothermal possibilities. There are side effects to all of these. With hydroelectric, if you dam something, you know, you affect everybody downstream. No way of getting energy is perfect, <laughs> where there isn't some kind of side effect. So the, to me, the most rational division would be, I would love whatever energy source has the minimal amount of side effects, but then you say, who is that for? Ugh, right? So now we're into that political side again. So if you're the person downstream from the dam, then you're the person that cares the most about are you going to do hydroelectric for me? So um, if you're the coal miner, you're going to want to have coal be your greatest value. I mean, you want your job. So it's all going to be based upon who you are in the society and which one of these is going to fit. Now, for me personally, um, 
and, and again, talking about me as an, an academic person looking at it, I know that I would prefer to have the balance between a healthy planet and a healthy economy. Like, how are you going to do that? You can't have all the healthy planet without having some of the you know, health. That would hurt the economy so badly that you would be losing jobs for everything, and then you couldn't afford the equipment to have the healthy planet, which might be the renewables. If you do all the healthy economy, then maybe we go, you know, coal for everything. And then what happens is we end up smoggy. So we give up the healthy planet. So this is a, a, a real delicate balance between the two is the way that I, I kind of think about it. No, I think it is interesting. And, and you made a few comments uh, related to hydropower, you know, being originally from Oregon in that area and, and being involved in the construction industry up there in Oregon, uh, I remember a number of events where we uh, removed and decommissioned uh, some smaller hydroelectric dams uh, in that area. And and not only was it a concern with, with people maybe living downstream of that dam, but also uh, there was a, there's been a heavy push and it still exists today, a heavy push towards, you know, well, the fish need to get above that dam, and so it's it's been a push yeah. from from salmon migration and so forth, and uh, so you have those challenges, and then also you can't. There's not always a river in every place either, that's that's viable Correct. for for hydroelectric, and uh, so so it has its impacts, and you got to weigh, like you just said, I, I thought it was well said. You have to weigh those total benefits and the total negatives. Of, of whatever source you're talking about, whether it be natural gas or right. geothermal or coal or or whatever it may be. And so I think it's it's really important that people understand that. And you've really got to understand also, you can't just look at energy and say, well, you know, I've or, or look at what the perception is, because the perception doesn't always bring out the economics. And that's also right. important as well, because without the economics, really, you can kiss the rest of it goodbye. Uh, so, you know, if you live in the United States, you're lucky enough to enjoy a superpower uh, that uh, has had a good run. And with that energy infrastructure, <laughs> that's been fantastic. And so you, you can't get uh, naive about how the economics work. Um, if you take away those economics, your lifestyle, if you live in the United States, could be significantly different. And so it's all of these components that make up uh, this greater uh, piece that exists in the United States. And so I think people often forget that, especially in times of, of, of abundance and really uh, easygoing times. And I think that uh, the U.S. has provided that for, for many, many, many decades. And so I think that's also important that people understand. Um, now, you mentioned some of these energy sources, can you can you kind of expand a little bit on your thoughts about sure. uh, maybe maybe solar and wind, and then also recently with uh, really post uh, the financial crisis in 2008 2009, there's been a quite a a heavy duty push in the United States in the shale, oil and that gas. Uh, there's been a lot of money thrown yeah. at that industry, and what what are your thoughts on gas prices and 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 also natural gas? Uh, being a part of the energy mix. What do you see going on there? All right. Uh, some of the, I think it's interesting if, if what would be your guess at the world renewable use? 
I would think that there are a lot of countries out there who were, because you were talking about the American value, the American system. I would think there's a lot of countries out there that where wind power would be more advantageous than maybe in the U.S. or solar may be more advantageous. But in the whole, on the planet, 5.6% of the energy, according to the the EA Energy and Information people, it says 5.6% of solar, wind, thermal, geothermal, for example, even tidal, all of those. 5.6% internationally, but internally, we're talking about about 11%. And the biggest problem with that is that the capital to start these, in order to make, for example, one nuclear power plant of, of kind of the standard size, you'd have to put solar panels all over covering the state of Iowa. Now, if we can't get the technology better in the solar panels, then Iowa's gone, right? <laughs> no, the idea is that some of the research is going to have to be in getting those dams or um, solar panels or the geothermals into a, a better um, technical situation so those side effects aren't so bad, so that we get them more efficient, so that we can get above those. So there's a lot of, of research in those areas that really needs to be supported. Um, now, the shale, what needs to be supported is those side effects as well. And we've all heard about fracking, and we've all heard about the fear of the earthquakes coming. And I, I definitely have done research in earthquake, and I definitely do not want those to start being induced in more locations that are not prepared for them because they've never experienced it. For example, the design codes for everything don't include the possibility for that. Um, it does make me nervous when you say, um, right now, natural gas is about 30, 30 about one-third or so of our energy production in the U.S. Um, I think that's a great percentage. It has much less greenhouse um, gas emissions than coal, which is about the same. Um, and the other 20%, which people might be surprised about, is uh, nuclear. And I always say, can you imagine your electric bill going up 20%? You wouldn't be happy. Well, let's cut out nuclear, and that's how that would work. So the natural gas value um, and what is keeping all of the fossil fuels and, and keeping everything going is actually helping out with our gas prices. It's helping out with everything because you think about how much of that used to be coal and how much of that is now more efficient. It's already in a little bit more refined situation. So I, I, I think it's fantastic that we got more natural gas because economically it's helped us. But again, what's the balance? Wouldn't you rather have something that was a um, little less greenhouse gas emissions? I'm sure, again, healthy planet versus healthy economy, right? Right. I think that, uh, you know, right now, if you look at natural gas uh, prices, you've, you've got some challenges with it's priced really for abundance and uh, and people right. think we're not going to run out of it. But the other piece of that is, is, is how long does the production <laughs> prices get financed? Yeah. And 
that's the issue because when you have uh, natural gas prices very low and, and uh, the, the large bulk of the companies really, uh, they better have some other assets along with it as part of really natural gas as a byproduct because if, if you had to rely just on natural gas prices alone as a business, you're, you're probably gonna be looking to file uh, for bankruptcy, uh, especially because at these prices, there's not a lot of profitability, there's not a lot of margin for error. And so it'll be interesting to see with some of the exportation that's starting to happen, uh, some of the energy issues in Europe with, with supply from uh, natural gas supply from Russia, uh, Japan uh, starting to do less uh, liquefied LNG import. Um, how how the how the price will respond over the next couple of years, and and as you know, uh, just like uh, fuel prices at the pump, um, once natural gas prices start to rise, uh, it is a substantial cost input for these uh, plants that uh, that are producing power from natural gas, and so it'll be right. interesting to see how Could that I plays tell you, out. Oh, I'm sorry. Sure. Could I tell you a little story about Mississippi? I think all of the folks down here are very aware of it. And that would be the Kemper County um, project that has been going on. Um, this was supposed to be as part of Obama's climate plan. He said, we're going to have a clean coal plant. And I'm sure you've heard clean coal. It is in air quotes. Get it? Air quotes. I know. Um, but the reason why is because the, the new technology is supposed to be employed. We've been working on clean coal technologies and there's still research ongoing. There's some here at the university. And and the whole concept is, yes, we can still use the cheap coal, but we can use it in such a way that we're not releasing the fossil fuel uh, byproducts into the environment to cause the greenhouse gases, cause the greenhouse global warming, all of those for climate change. Um, so the, the, they've, Funded supposedly, it was supposed to be 2.7 billion dollars to start this plant. It started in 2010 construction. About 20, it was supposed to finish in 2014. And every time they had a milestone, they hit um, some kind of problem. It was either scaling up the clean coal technology, or it was some piece that didn't work, or it was something always coming up, or and then they ran out of money, and they were starting to put the money onto the people in the county and like that's not fair um and so it was supposed to finally finish up and the next thing was 2017 and now it was 7.5 billion dollars and um in 2017 they said you know this is not going to work out and decided to switch to natural gas so that's my fear, honestly, is that they take these plants and then switch the source of the gassing, which is, sounds easy from the outside, but from the inside, technically not easy. And then switch to natural gas. Well, what's going to happen when, like as you say, the byproducts start running out? Right. And so this natural gas plant that was supposed to be a clean coal plant, now what's it going to change to? Just shut down for seven and a half billion dollars of capital investment. And Southern has taken a pretty good hit for the Southern Energy, has taken a pretty good hit for it. Wow, I bet the contractor who who's in charge of that project, it's Change Order City, I bet they're enjoying that. that that's really, that's really <laughs> too bad. 
what's what's yeah. interesting. Certainly, certainly was not aware of that. Um, I appreciate you sharing that. What do you what do you think? Let's let's talk about wind and solar for a moment. What do you think is wrong with wind and solar that people really haven't yet become to understand? Um, I think that people don't understand the smart grid. I mean, we love the word smart, right? We love smart infrastructure. We love smart phones. We love smart devices. We love smart everything. But imagine that you need to have a system that understands the demand that's happening at your house for electricity in order to figure out how to send you how much you need. I mean, how many computers would that take? It'd have to connect from your house to your where your utility is, to where their source is, to where whoever's monitoring everything is. So, for example, um, my energy comes through um, a lot of different sources, but I'm hydroelectric. What happens when we have a drought? Where is that downfall coming from, right? What happens with solar when it's been cloudy for the last 93 days? You know, um, what happens when there's no wind? You know, uh, those all happen. The biggest problem with renewables is that somebody is going to have to store the energy when you get excess. And you've heard about being able to sell some of this back to the, the company. You know, that's great. But this means that somebody has to have battery storage. And somebody has to control when it comes back to you when you need it because you have excess demand. So this kind of a smart grid does not exist. And that's why you hear about the rolling brownouts and, and things like this in the, when there's extra heat in the large cities. They just run out. I'm sorry, today we don't have enough electricity for everybody. So um, I think that is going to be such a capital investment that I think it hasn't been addressed directly. And, and I think everybody's meters are changing, which is good news. But being able to have them all hooked together into a system that would be able to monitor everybody at one time be able to distribute evenly and equally, you know, to everybody. That's that's something that I don't know if politically we would ever get done. So I've got a I've got a solution. Everybody's thinking, well, well, everybody should just you know put an Amazon Alexa in their house, and, and Alexa can listen and, and connect <laughs> and and tell tell everybody what what's going on in your house, including uh, including your energy demand. <laughs> I, you know uh, what. If they pay for it and give me some Wi-Fi, no, I don't want her spying on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's really uh, comical uh, some of these things. But tell me, tell me about for a sec. Let's go back to wind and solar for just a moment. And I don't mean to attack wind and solar. I, I think no that problem. it has its place, uh, but but at the same time, it has some significant challenges that will will not be fixed anytime soon. And what that what that is 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 tell me, we're kind of really I guess you could argue that, you know, with some of this stuff's been replaced and maybe that first generation uh, has come through already and passed through as far as these, oh, yeah. these components. But well, tell me about when it's more and amazing than they used to be. Yeah. Right. So tell me about for a sec, what happens when these tell me about the life cycle of solar and wind and then tell me what happens when these things need to be repaired, replaced, components changed out. 
Uh, obviously, the battery technology is frequently. Tell me about what's happening with all these solar panels that have been installed over the last, uh, you know, couple maybe couple decades. Really, tell us what happens when this stuff starts to come off in terms of life cycle, and and how do what are we doing on replacement, and what happens with all the waste uh, of all the old components? Do you know, I have wondered, for example, the very first Prius that came out, I really wondered, what did they do with all those batteries when they start going bad? What happens when you trade it in? What happens with all those? Batteries are some of the most chemically loaded things in the entire planet with cathodes and anodes that we know about. It's just two-sided chemicals trading in between. the kinds of chemicals vary based upon you hear about lithium, you hear about all these other sources. And by the way, amazing battery technology going in. Everybody is working on this problem. Well, I want to make sure somebody's working on what happens as the end product, because I agree with you. I'm worried about where these pieces are going. I'm worried because let's think about the computer components and the leads and the heavy metals that are in there. Those things absolutely used to be in every battery we ever get, and some of them it's still in there. So what are we going to do? Let's make sure it doesn't get into the groundwater. Great. So what do we do with it? Um, I I think one of my concerns is um, specifically having my own cheap solar panel for a little while is that it actually, it got damaged. by flying debris, I said, what am I supposed to dispose of it with? So I read through all the paperwork and trying to figure out what was happening. I didn't get any help. So I put it through the university system as e-waste because I didn't know what else to do. So I I can tell you from personal experience, I didn't know there wasn't any information in it. I I didn't have anything. Um, Most people that have panels, Significant panels on their roof, I would say uh, three large panels or more, are going to have to have basically a battery bank that will kind of rotate in and out. Um, I would say several batteries, depending on what size is that they are. And think about all the wiring into everything and and the installation. um, I believe Obama had in part of his climate plan he also had that you got a bonus for doing it that helped with the installation cost, but I believe it was kind of standard around $20,000 as a minimum cost for, for the wiring and getting everything in. So how long does that take to pay back before you have to go buy another battery? And then how do you dispose of that battery? And I don't want to beat up uh, uh, solar either, all right? I would love for it to be able to be easily installed and over every roof and everybody get the benefit of it. But the fact is, somebody's got to wire something in. There is one other way that I have I have seen solar work that I really think might be a nice approach, which is warming liquids. So, for example, on a warm summer day, for example, in the south, um, you need, instead of a hot water heater, you might use solar water to warm up your pipes, almost like a steam generator, you know. And in that case, that's great for your battery. You wouldn't need all of that information. You wouldn't need all of that byproduct of battery. But 
you can only take a shower when the sun's out. So there are a couple issues going on here. <laughs> Not to say everything else is perfect, just to say that I think the wind byproducts are much less scary to me, but they still have to have the battery to be able to do that. But there's not a glass there. Um, wind turbines are very typical pieces of equipment. They're um, standard, fairly easy, fixable. There's still a lot of research going on to try to get them smaller, lighter, move faster in smaller winds. Um, typically, it takes about three, they're almost at three, but about five miles per hour to get them to start turning because of friction and the weight. And maybe there could be some micro, um, that was one of my ideas, like some micro turbines, but the wind has the side effect of noise. And you might've heard of this at people that live nearby hear a whining sound or something as it as it's spinning. So that can be a weird side effect too. <laughs> that can annoy the people nearby. Um, there are a lot of things, but I think the biggest thing that scares me is battery technology and where are the battery byproducts go. And you know, for example, Andrew, you're not supposed to throw your AA batteries in the trash, right? Well, it depends on where them. you live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but where no, are you supposed to put them is the next question. So... Right, right, and that's that's the whole that's the whole challenge is is with waste from wind and solar, which we have not yet to quantify. I have not seen any any work on the quantification of that, and that's the issue. Now, it's all about I have. right. Well, yeah, and the batteries certainly because uh, we've we've had those from from in our in our small electronic devices, flashlights, etc., uh, for so many years. Right. I think that that's starting to happen, and then also. In the U.S., there may be some systems set up to take care of this, some management systems uh, for these types of things. Obviously, that that has progressed, but it has not progressed yet to the level of what do we do with a whole solar panel? What do we do with wind turbine components? What do we do with the batteries, which, again, you obviously is one of the biggest problems. Uh, what happens there? And so they have another, every chemical possible, you know, <laughs> they have they certainly have a lot of issues. And the other piece is to that is because that system's not set up, how do you inventory, quantify, and regulate that? And that is that is another piece that I, I wanna just point out for just a sec. People don't know where this stuff's going. Is it remaining in the US? Is it being shipped off to the lowest bidder? Is it being burnt in, mm -hmm. in another country? What's What's happening with that? Because no one is keeping track of what's going on with that waste. But yet, but yet we know exactly, let me just go back over to for a moment, nuclear waste. We know exactly where it is. We know exactly where it's secured. We know that it's quantifiable. We know exactly where it is because it's so important. We don't miss a beat. It's inventoried. We know exactly where it is. We know what it does. Whereas all this other stuff, we don't know where this stuff's going. And it's, and it's much obviously from a volume standpoint, it's much greater the the waste from batteries, solar, et cetera. And so that's the challenge that hasn't even been addressed. And the other piece is just obviously the sheer volume and space. Uh, you made mention for a sec about the uh, the state of Iowa and how if you included if you if you, even if you eliminated again, maybe you can answer this or or talk about this a little bit more detail. But just if you covered the state of Iowa in uh, solar panels, 
well, let's first think about the, the terrain that you couldn't place the solar panels on, and then let's think about the roads required <laughs> to get in, get in between them. Right. And then let's think of all the battery banks and all the other stuff to connect oh, them. Yeah. And so I, I want to ask you about that for a sec. What What is your thoughts on on how that works when you cover a landscape like this and you, you eliminate really uh, ground that could have potentially been used. Obviously in Iowa, we know that there's there's a good amount of uh, farming ground and so forth that could be used for other things. What do you, what do you see on that side? Well, that was just an analogy. The area like of Iowa, of course, I would recommend just as we've done out in the desert, do the solar farms out there, right? So if we took the, the um, you know, maybe feet squared that we would take out of or acres squared that we would take out of Iowa and then stuck it out into Death Valley or stuck it out into the desert where we couldn't grow crops, where we couldn't do all of those things. That solar farm is great area. And, um, but there's two problems um, that I, I mean, there's many problems, but two major problems that I foresee. One, the battery banks are basically trans, they're battery stations because they have to be that large. Those enormous, enormous places, I can't even imagine, right? It's beyond any comprehension that we'd be able to understand what size batteries that would have to be stored. And you'd have to find someone who built a solar farm to really understand that, in my opinion. Um, because the practicality just hurts. But I think the uh, other thing that I would think that imagine that you need to have the solar panels rotating so that they catch the sun at the best angle all the time. What they used to do is just put some of them in one direction and some of them in the other direction. And then I say now they actually do have some excellent rotating panels. Well, what's the maintenance on a panel that rotates when there's sand blowing around? You know, there, there's, I have concerns about um, over time, you know, I'm an infrastructure person. I'm just sitting there thinking about over time, not only are you having to do plantal replacements, repairs, what if you have, you know, wire cuts? What if you have that? What if you have sand getting all of those things? So I've, suspect that the biggest problem out there would not stop if we had enough capital investment, if we had enough research behind it. I do think that the solar farms are going to be an excellent percentage, but I just think we have to get above. How are we going to get power from New Mexico or Arizona out to the people who need it in Boston? I still think that the smart grid is, is going to be the biggest concern is how are we going to distribute everything. If we could make, get the smart grid in such a way that it could distribute it as needed, then you wouldn't have to have such a large battery bank, maybe none at all. And that would reduce a lot of what's going on with the, the byproducts, which we do not track that I know of. So I want to just touch on a couple things there. Obviously, this is all very, it's all bodes very well with needing a lot of copper wire. Uh, that's that's going to be a, a, a big piece of this. But another piece to it as well is back, I'm going to go back again to, to for a moment because I think this is important for people to understand the scale of the issue. Now, back to Iowa. If, if we take and cover Iowa, 
Now these solar panels, these things don't work, you know, 90% efficiency. These things are intermittent energy sources. So, so talk to me for a moment just about intermittency of these energy sources. And then also talk to me about heat and how solar panels dislike heat. One of the things that I'm very particular to let people know is that I really think that the day-night idea and the cloudy idea is a difficult thing for people to comprehend. I mean, it sounds simple, right? Yeah, at night you don't get any energy. Sure, but that, that means that you and your house would have to give up a closet for battery bank, right? Are you willing to give up an extra closet? Most people want more closets, right? Um, and then what's the size of that battery bank for the whole state of Iowa? Where's that going to go? It needs to go in a nearby state. Well, which one? Well, that might go into um, because people fear leakage or anything like that. That might go into the NIMBY, not in my backyard kind of category. Um, I don't want to have someone else's batteries in mine. I think over time, the degradation of what happens with a solar panel. I can tell you about mine. It didn't last more than a year, <laughs> a season. I got through a full season before I, I was, it was already burnt through. Now you say burnt through. What does that mean? Um, that means that the glass on the front had just basically got so brittle that it cracked. And of course, I don't have high quality or anything like I don't have the $20,000 panel. Um, think about heat expansion and contraction and what that does to a, something that's like glass that's brittle. And I, I imagine that that's part of the research that's going on. What's happening over the fatigue of something expanding and contracting, expanding and contracting? And think about that happens every day when the sun goes up and then every day again when the sun goes down. Especially if you put this out in the desert, especially if you have a cold night and, and warm days, there are a lot of concerns mechanically about how one of these solar panels is going to last. And so uh, you want to go spend, you know, I don't know how much a solar farm would be. That's the truth. But I can't imagine it's cheap if your house is 20000 So if it's 20000 for every person that lives in, in Iowa, how's that? Um, and then you say to yourself, holy moly, and then you don't know how long those pieces are going to last. I, I don't want to make that capital investment unless I'm 100% sure that the technology is there. Now, if you are installing them, for example, on top of a building that already is there and it is a wasted space, then that might be a benefit to be able to do that. And in fact, that's part of uh, an excellent idea besides not just the desert, but if you have a wasted space on top of a building, Fill it up with some panels, and that might help you out during the day if you have a large structure, um, especially if you have a warehouse or something like that. But somebody has to help with this capital investment. So I, I want to make a couple comments on that. Um, first of all, in a moment, I, I want to I ask you about the impact on wildlife, specifically from, from solar in the desert, and then also wind. There, there's, been, there's been a significant... Uh, talk about uh, wind turbines and how that might impact uh, certain birds uh, of, of importance uh, that may also 
not already have a great population. Um, I want to ask you about that in a moment, but I want to go back just a moment to the intermittent nature. Imagine for a moment if you have a router in your house that only worked 35% of the time. I mean, how frustrating would it sure. be to hold, hold, a, hold a discussion like this? How frustrating would that be if your internet was cutting out, uh, really was only maybe 40% efficient, and, and that's really being uh, generous? Um, I think people need to understand that, and it goes back to the Iowa example again. If you wanted to get back up to an 80 to 90% efficiency uh, in, terms of, in terms of uptime, what would that state actually ex expand to? Because if really, it's not just Iowa anymore. Now it's gotten much greater. If you want to have full time or uh, nearest to possible 100% uptime, how does that expand the footprint of wind and solar? And I think that's the other question that really nobody can answer with mm -hmm. any intelligence, because obviously oh, we no. don't know if the winds, you know, the wind might be blowing in Missouri, but how's things in Iowa? You know, who knows? And so that's the that's the question. And obviously, if uh, even the weathermen on the on the TV can't really predict the weather that great still, and so that's that's a little bit of an issue. But but tell me tell me I want to ask you two things. Let's talk about the the wildlife impacts on wind, if you've seen or what your take is on that. And then also, my other question to this, I want to move to the economics for a sec. If we went to really a hard charge for wind and solar in the United States as really the becoming the really the larger share of energy mix. How many tens of trillions of dollars are we talking about? Do you have, can, and is it really feasible at this point? All right. So, as an academic, first, I support all research into getting renewables up to a 90%. I would love to see that efficiency occur. I would let you know that um, our vehicle engines aren't even 90%. I haven't seen a 90%. If I could get a 90% engine, I would be really a happy person. So, if we could get 90% efficiency out of anything, engineers will smile all over the planet and we will move towards that, okay? <laughs> as far as animals, um, any endangered species should and does immediately stop that project. And I think we all have heard about them in the news in multiple locations all over the planet. Um, here is healthy planet versus healthy economy again to me. Okay, this might be good for a thousand people. Um, does that outweigh this animal's existence if it's an endangered species, right? Is there another way that we, another environment we could put them in? Is there another? And there's absolutely, um, we always have folks come in to talk about that. It's, it's a very interesting subject to study, and it's kind of a, you know, political, ethical, moral. It, it hits all the notes. Um, and what's happening specifically is that where you get a large amount of wind might be in the locations where you have some of the travel, I forget what it's called, I call it the bird highway, where they travel always from South America all the way up to North and then travel back down. Um, so you might avoid those areas, but those may be the areas where you have the most wind that you want to put a turbine in. And so absolutely, you're going to see the research studies that are trying to see how can we prevent bird deaths. The other thing is that people not, may not realize is that turbine, wind turbines may be set up in a specific direction, but they could also rotate. And it depends on which kind that you have. And it could rotate with the wind if the wind got strong enough. 
or there might even be a motor that is in there that where someone could actually adjust the rotation or it could adjust when it gets to a certain speed. So there's a lot of things inside of there that if it got a direct hit, you could imagine that that rotation could get stuck. You could imagine that something in there would break and then you wouldn't get maximum efficiency out of the wind turbine to start with. What what would you say on on the other on the other piece of that and that there's some real challenges yeah. there on the other piece Elizabeth what what is your thought on really is it really economically feasible at this point in time to just shut off everything else that we have our base load and just go to wind and solar I mean is it you know you hear some people talking <laughs> about that which are really which are really out of yeah. touch. It, how many look if you, had, <laughs> yeah. if you had to add it up would it would it be 60 80 trillion dollars what would it be <laughs> yes your other question made me think exactly of the green new deal now um i haven't officially read the document all the way through and i don't know that there is one but and it it seems like there's some different but um everybody wants to protect the planet but as i understand it the Green New Deal says, let's have 100% clean power. That's the first thing. That would be great. What do you call clean power? Does that mean no byproducts ever? Does that mean, I'm expecting that means no greenhouse gases. So that would have to mean that we're in renewables. However, what I don't think people are understanding is that nuclear has no greenhouse gases. So I would say clean power would have to be renewables and nuclear. It couldn't be any oil product. But see, I don't know if that's what they mean. Now, right now we're at about, let's just say 20%. Um, some people are saying 11% um, renewables. Some people say, it depends on who you're talking to, which politician, which whatever, which statistical agency. So I'm going to say we're about 10 to between 10 and 20 percent. Give us the benefit of the doubt. If we're 20 percent right now, and the current growth based upon capital investment into into renewable electricity is about one percent per year, that's going to put us at 100 percent clean power at 2180. I've got a sneaking suspicion that that is not what the Green Deal is thinking. They're thinking that they can do that in two years. They're thinking they can do that in four years, maybe eight. But we're talking about 2,100. So 80 years is a, a better number because we have to overcome where we are now. And, and if you increase that capital investment, you'd be able to increase that percentage per year. I would agree with that until we run out of space for solar or run out of dams or we can't build anymore because we're endangering the fish downstream, right? And so I love the idea. I love the sentiment, but I just don't think that it's, it's financially, fiscally reasonable because the economy, if you put enough money in, we couldn't even build everything in eight years to be able to make this infrastructure work. On top of that, the, the Green New Deal's second idea is the smart grid, and I totally support that. Um, I don't know how it would happen without, I, I, I'm gonna, I can't put a number on it, but I know it's in the billions, okay? <laughs> That's my minimum, okay? 
and I don't know how many because again imagine that every single person every single building has to be connected across the country and maybe that can be done more easily than I'm thinking but I don't know if the side of my house is helping anything and maybe they just connect the major things but still there's a lot of people working on how we could do a smart grid that would meter everything and automatically distribute. That's the best part would be to automatically distribute the energy so that you wouldn't have to have all of those nasty battery banks. So um, those are the two main, the first two items in there. And, and I just, I don't see it feasible because of the amount of capital investment. However, I think it would make a great amount of jobs. Can you imagine how many solar power plants we would have, like people building the equipment? Oh, it would be an amazing number of jobs, as long as we don't outsource it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I th well, I think you mentioned a number of things there. I think that, you know, that's a whole other topic, certainly temporary jobs versus permanent jobs and really what, what that looks oh, like yeah. in time, time frame. But then also, um, if you just if you think that perhaps if we just take the nuclear power industry and we call the the power side of that only, and maybe if you include some of the infrastructure associated, let's let's call it a and this is I think conservative. Let's call it an eight trillion with a T dollar industry worldwide. Now, if you were to take it just in the United States alone and convert over to this so-called renewable, although the word renewable in itself for some of these forms of energy given solar and wind right. really is you have to replace it uh, frequently right now and, and there's a lot of waste yeah. i wouldn't call it fully renewable but uh regardless of that if you looked at let's let's see how much that might cost uh if it is a 50 trillion dollar conversion trillion with a t how does the treasury finance that? How do, will there be anybody to buy the treasuries, uh, the treasury bonds when they are issued? Will there be anybody? Will the treasury print all that money? And and with that, you can you can be rest oh. assured there would be a huge amount of of bad investment that occurred simultaneously with that. But who? How how would it get financed? And and is it really? In in my view, I think it's just absolutely nuts to think that. Uh, the treasury would do anything like that, or the taxpayers would would uh, go for such a dilution of of the currency uh, to be able to do that. And so I think that that is a huge problem, and I don't think anybody really wants to uh, to put already a, a bad situation already worse. You know, as it is stands already, you know, the the national debt from a federal level is twenty trillion. Good grief! I, what, I hurt. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> So, but look, I want to I want to move on. I want to talk about safe energy sources. I want to I want to get your view on what you see as really kind of uh, the worst energy source from a safety standpoint, uh, and also impact standpoint. And then also maybe give me your thoughts on what you think is really a, a heavily safe energy source when you weigh the total cost of everything. So um, I work on. Uh, trying to decide if bridges after an event, for example, um, are safe. And I put safe in quotes because what's the definition? <laughs> um, it's levels of safety. It's like, I think it's going to be okay or um, I know it's going to collapse, right? Those are the two extremes. Um, it's all about risk management. So. Safety 
in the inverse is what risk are you going to be able to handle? The risk management when it comes to all of these in energy industries are absolutely different. And are you talking financial risk? Then you have to worry about all the capital because you may not be able to get it started and you probably won't get your treasury money and all that. Now, what I'm talking uh, personally, I look at the technical risk. Technology is going to be the problem. So when I look at oil, I look at oil spills and go, holy mackerel, all it takes is one little valve to break, right? And we can ruin the gulf. I mean, this, this, is, this is something that's a very big risk. And we've seen it. So there's the truth. What happens with natural gas? Um, they burn it off. What about coal? We, you know, what's the risk of coal? Well, we, we kind of know, but then we have the collapses and we have the miners stuck inside of it or they fumigate because they don't have a good, um, you know, mine air pocket, you know. We have these awful things that can happen. I think the, the risk with hydroelectric is once everybody's built their new houses down the stream and then the dam breaks. What if we have, for example, uh, biofuels? I, I think those are like algaes and, and something like that. I think that doesn't have, as long as we don't create some super algae that overwhelms um, the entire swamp or something and we lose the Everglades, we should be okay, right? But you never know when you introduce something new. Um, the, the wind and the solar are, are Risk management is more, in my opinion, of the equipment, you know. So to me, that's a pretty safe sort of energy if we could just get that efficiency up. And then we come back to nuclear power where everybody is so afraid. And being part of the industry that I worked in, I said, oh, my gosh. But, you know, I went there. The paychecks are usually a little higher than some other places, kind of like petroleum industry. And. I said, why? Because everybody knows if you make a mistake. Um, it is a very intense need for it to be safe. Like petroleum, it is an intense need because you know if you make a mistake, it could be major. So we all heard of, saw, heard, we saw Fukushima. We all saw, heard about Chernobyl. We're all watching that on HBO. Um, this is a Three Mile Island, all horror stories that have scared everybody everywhere. However, what if I told you that a nuclear power plant is the only power plant that is designed for a 747 to hit it without breaking and, to, and causing a meltdown or an explosion? It is designed for earthquake. It is designed for everything. Now. The only catch is this is in the U.S. It has the, the best design that we can put forward. And they work. It's usually a human error or it's usually something else that's going on or a different design somewhere else in the world. I would say if nuclear is done correctly, it's exquisitely safe. But if nuclear is done wrong, it's exquisitely dangerous. It is a risk management issue. That's the worst. Even oil can't 
these can't top a nuclear disaster. <laughs> we all know that. And we also know that the oil can eventually, we can do some things with it. But what do we do when the things that escape have a 10,000 year half-life, right? There's not much that we can do for that. I think you've touched on, well, we got into some other, some other topics. Sorry, that's you, what I think of safe to be, so. <laughs> right, no, absolutely, no, I, and I appreciate that. When you look at these sources of energy from a deaths to terawatt hour basis, obviously nuclear wins quite handily, uh, and when you, when you obviously, also when you include the fact that nuclear, there's no other energy source that provides the, for lack of better words, powerful amount of, of uh, power out of something so really so small and so such a small footprint. It's a huge, huge difference uh, from any other source of power. And when you consider on the back end, you mentioned coal, the mine side going into the plant, the byproducts coming from the plant, the pollution coming from the plant. Mm -hmm. And if you look at a place like China, obviously with one of the greatest populations in the world, you look at the deaths that come out of that. And and not and not just there, other places too. India, uh, the United States uh, has has used coal power for a long time as well. Less less today, but uh, still used it for a long time. And so you look at the total deaths. You look at people falling off accidents, construction accidents, wind turbines, etc., solar panels. Um, and obviously that'll still come down. But the problem is what's what's hurting that statistic from the wind and solar side is, as you said, it's so intermittent that uh, you know one person falling mm -hmm. off a roof can really impact the statistics. And uh, so it's really starting to, to build there. So from, from that standpoint, you also have some of the perceptions, and you mentioned some of the perceptions about nuclear power. Um, but if you, if you cut it out, the other piece also that you mentioned is the most high-level engineering across the board has gone into nuclear power. That's, that's where most of your talent has really been placed uh, and I and I and you got to give you got to give the talent that has been around in the industry some real credit for an industry that has so what do we much. have four four hundred and fifty two worldwide reactors uh, and a number of under construction and so forth and over that sixty four sixty five year commercial operating period let's not even talk about the military operating history. With nuclear. Oh yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. <laughs> but let's 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 talk let's talk about that for a moment. Give me your thoughts. But you have that kind of history, and then you have let's 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 count the accidents, and I can do it on less than one hand. And you really look at things like Three Mile Island, which really is a testament to the safety features of that design, and and how it really did quite well, even though people make businesses off of the fear from that event alone. But then you look at a Fukushima, then you look at a Chernobyl, which is also an, a very interesting case. And then you look also what's happening at Chernobyl today versus what people mm -hmm. thought Chernobyl would be for hundreds of years. That's changing yeah. quite rapidly, much more than people thought. So give me your thoughts on, on these accidents. And then also talk a little bit more about really the, the talent that is here in the nuclear industry that provides probably some of the most robust construction designs ever known to you know humankind so uh, the first thing that you mentioned uh, is a little bit about uranium itself a small pellet kind of like a, a rabbit pellet <laughs> it's about it you know analogy 
said about that much of energy provides about 17,000 cubic feet of natural gas as energy, 1,780 pounds of coal, and 149 gallons of oil. And one plant that produces a uh, 1,000 megawatts or one gigawatt of power uses five pounds of uranium each day. It's amazing that the energy density that comes out of a very small piece of energy. And out of that, imagine what are the greenhouse gases that come out of that much coal, 1,780 pounds of coal versus zero for this. Um, the other thing, some of the accidents, I know they're so scary. We all think of the three-eyed fish on the Simpsons, um, whose name is Blinky, by the way. Um, the A coal-fired plant releases 100 times more radiation than the equivalent nuclear power plant. See, you get radiation every day, and a lot of people are so scared of that thought. You get an x-ray, right? But you get radiation when you fly a plane, in a plane. You get radiation all the time. A three-mile island accident reduced one-sixth of the radiation of one chest x-ray. Think about that safety design and that safety feature that prevented the radiation that prevented the radiation from coming out into the public. Um, and Chernobyl itself, it was the poorest, quickest design that they could have put together. Um, they they didn't have backup plans. They basically had one containment. The biggest thing um, about radiation is that controlling it is hard. <laughs> so you need to have containment vessel that holds it all in. So the containment vessel that they had was a bunch of water, and that just didn't work. It got dry. They dropped some um, material into the water, and they lost all their containment, and there you go. Um, one of the things that we have to think about is always you have something inherently on. You have to burn everything else. You have to, you know, this is something that is always wanting to run. So as a designer, you are having to slow it down all the time. You're having to find a way to put some other, some other chemical around it or put some other material around it to slow it down. And if you don't, then you're going to end up with something that you can't control. So as an engineer, you're the one that has to specifically have the the talent, I would say, to know that you're you're dealing with something that is going to explode on you. And it would be like handling C4 all the time. When everybody thinks about it in the public, they think, oh, my God, we're going to die because of the daily radiation or we're going to die if there's an earthquake. And then the people who are the engineers designing it is like, no, we've already taken care of that. We have thought about that. Um, I think that we're covered with most accidents because we've done accident-based design, um, which is not required for any building um, unless you're in a seismic zone. And then it's not done for a 747 hitting it. The other thing would be the talent that started these designs. Now, these designs haven't. The ones that are being built 
um, are mostly pressurized water reactors. Some are boiling water reactors. There aren't really new ones going out, right? So, and we'll, I hope we'll get a chance to talk about that a little bit. But most of these are designs are 1970, 1960 designs, and those guys, and again with the military, and those guys were even earlier. These engineers were amazing, and they already knew that they were having problems. They already knew that they that they would have to control the uncontrollable to be able to make these things. And so we have today most of the people that are getting hired in are to maintain those things. And again, infrastructure. How are we going to control these aging plants? How are we going to be able to take care of those? So um, the talent in initially building it was outstanding. I mean, we've all heard about the Manhattan Project, but that's a whole different focus, you know? <laughs> that was now, after all of that had occurred, can we use this for domestic by reining in the uncontrollable? And then now we have this talent that needs to go out there to maintain, and they have been for all these years maintaining these amazing plants that are producing 20% of our energy, despite not having any increase in the, in the actual number of plants, they often will be able to upgrade the plant or try a little more and get a little more energy out of each one. Uh, a lot of, a lot of key points. Not sure quite where to, where to start on it, but I, I want to, <laughs> the bomb, is, is there something with uh, these bomb. things? Tell me, tell me if it's for humans when the, when the nuclear bomb was developed. And obviously we know there's a huge difference. We're talking about maybe a, a four to 5% enrichment for a commercial power plant and over 90% enrichment right. of uranium right. for, for a bomb. But right. That was the bomb was the first thing, and it was during obviously World War II, and and uh, I'm sure there was a lot of work started before that, but and there was always a race to get there, and and it was really just a matter of who could pour the most money there, and and who really had the the talent to get it done, and obviously the United States was the one who was, was successful first, but just going back to humans and having such a device that is so unstable. There's, there seems to be a, a drive by the engineers and the talent behind the project to harness something. And when you take that and you go over to commercial nuclear power and you have uh, the same type of talent that wants to harness and, 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 and discover something and, and use it for, for, for good purposes, uh, obviously uh, it's, it's the best power source we have by a long shot. Um, is there is there really just a, a desire to that does that does that attract talent in itself and and the push to make something the best it can be and then when you have the military especially the U.S. that really adopted it and Russia as well back during that time adopt adopted these basically micro PWRs in their military uh, mm -hmm. equipment like submarines. I think submarines was probably one of the first, and then it got into the battleships and so forth. And, and the and the Navy uses it substantially. Mm -hmm. Tell tell me tell me about that, and then tell me how it's really any different than someone who designs a 747 aircraft. Whether you're talking Airbus or Boeing, obviously everybody likes Airbus a little bit better these days, uh, for the moment. <laughs> uh, but but nonetheless. For the 
talk talk about what what is the difference between making an automobile safe, making uh, an aircraft be able to fly at the altitude it flies a commercial aircraft with with tons of passengers fly at the altitude it can fly at. Talk about how those risks of safety exist in automobiles, nuclear power, and and airplanes. But yet people are so happy to jump into an automobile every day or jump on an aircraft and take a flight. Oh my gosh. Some, something about a nuclear commercial reactor, they, they think the bomb and it's not, we know it isn't. Uh, but but <laughs> talk, talk about that. And, and, and do you believe that there, there is some real talent out there that tries to achieve and solve these issues to make them as, as safe as we possibly can? Well, you know, engineers work on car wrecks because we've all seen the uh, crash test dummies. So we know that that's part of the purpose of having engineers being in the auto industry working on the car safety. Um, but I think about the car as a potential every day for you to have the wreck to kill you, right? But and that car wreck could kill how many? You know, I don't want to say that because it, it it's in the tens. But how many? died at Chernobyl um, in the within the first few days because of the radiation that leaked out because of bad design and human error. They didn't have enough safety features. Then they made a mistake, you know, and then that was 56 people. So now the cleanup and the cancers after, that's a different story. All right. So you affected a lot of people. Um, how about Fukushima? Um, I, I I don't know yet, right? But immediately it was firefighters, I believe, and people in the area. But I, it was less than ten, if I understand. The the 747 or whatever airplane we've been seeing that that is in that could be in the hundreds, right? And we take those all the time, and they are designed for crash. But we also know they're very high in the air. You know, the, the, there's a difference. Um, and the, the small PWRs, um, pressure water reactors, you know, you think about how much, how much different the material is and the small amount of material that you would have. Well, that's less to get out also. But the difference, like you were mentioning enrichment, that's a really important point. Because that is something that would kind of do a risk management for me. If I have something that is an ore, that is different than something that has been enriched to the point of um, the Manhattan Project, right? So uh, what what's it radiation that it's giving off is a different kind. It's a different amount. And if I put it in my pocket, it will kill me differently. <laughs> in fact, right. the ore can stay in your pocket as long as you would like, okay? Um, you might not want to do it 10 years, but in fact, um, the measurements of millirems, you know, you might get, the average American might get 80 millirems from x-rays. You might get one, two, or three from some ore that's in your pocket. But if you had something that was a higher level, you would have more, I would have more fear of that kind of element. So if I have the micro PWR in a smaller, it depends on how much I'm outputting, I might have a higher enrichment in it. So 
what happens is if you have that higher enrichment, what do the engineers do? We've got to make it even more secure. So that's the thing about the military folks. Imagine how much they have to secure their micro PWRs, not only because it's whatever's inside of it, but whatever's outside of it, because they're expecting that they could be in a war. I think I think it's important to just bring that out. And one of the things that people miss often is again, and it's it's a later it's a latest thing that happens. You know, we've got cars that are running around on the roads that don't have drivers inside the cab, but yet that's okay. And when it wipes someone out on the I four hundred five, I figured freeway, that out. Yeah. And, and exactly, that's that's the whole thing. It, that's okay. That that seems to be widely acceptable. That that Google or Tesla. Uh, you know, can 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 drive a, yeah. a vehicle uh, down the road and and have an accident on the 405 freeway in Los Angeles, and uh, exactly, you know, no big deal. And that's that's the the interesting uh, issue is is the the perception. Um, and I think also with that is when you have the military leading the charge way back, and then you have what's happened with if you look over the history of nuclear power. I think we can all agree that the leap forward till today, the the designs are absolutely impressive, and it, you and you could also say that certainly with Chernobyl, the uh, the government had a heavy hand in the design of of their their reactors there. They had accidents with their submarines and so forth as well. Um, yeah, you can certainly make the case that the United States really had the talent and. Uh, that maybe maybe there should should have been on the commercial power side there should have been some collaboration with talking with the talent in, in Britain and France and, and the United States back then to to make sure that they have a good design. Um, so I think it's really interesting. But yet people are okay with you know remotely controlled cars. We're okay with a natural gas pipeline right of way that happens to pass through a neighborhood. We're okay with that. Yeah. It's it's okay yeah. if that explodes and wipes out a couple city blocks. That's that's okay. And and that's that's what's really interesting about this is is uh, people think that a hurricane's coming into Florida and uh, oh get out get away from the nuclear plant it's going to blow up. <laughs> oh the the infrastructure. One of the things that we when we think of infrastructure, you hear almost every day. Oh, this house exploded. Oh, this bridge fell down. You know, all of these things are happening around you, and you're not realizing that because it's happening every day. Something in the U.S. is happening with infrastructure. Either a pipe is exploding or this. And that's why I keep pushing. Um, and it's not necessarily viewed as maintenance. I mean, it's not necessarily viewed highly because it's viewed as maintenance. When it's viewed as maintenance, you don't want to put money in on it. So one of the things is everybody wants a new design or a new something. So there is, as engineers, we want to be on what's new. We're like, dude, Tesla's putting out a new car that nobody's driving. I want to design that. And we have, you know, graduates this year that are going to go work there because that is cool. And I'm like, yeah, but we also have 500 jobs in the South about maintaining the nuclear power plants that we need to have these people hired, you know? <laughs> well, I want to I want to talk about that, Elizabeth. Let's let's, let's move into that now. Um, let's let's talk about the staffing challenges that, that exist in the nuclear industry. And then also these 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 jobs 
I mean, new new power plants, depending on where you're talking, uh, China or otherwise, or in the U.S., these are really, truly permanent jobs. Uh, these these are things that you can really spend a lifetime if you wanted to because of the life life cycle of these plants. Talk talk about the staffing challenges that we have. The nuclear industry itself has, um, when I was creating this course, I spoke with Southern Nuclear and Energy. And so I can only speak on behalf of, of my experience with them in the commercial industry. Um, they were very accommodating. And let me know some of the challenges they have. And one of the big ones is retention. We all know an aging workforce. Um, we've got baby boomers that are taking all that talent with those first designs and those first maintenance and those first things, and they're leaving. And if now we're having people come in, new engineers, and we're having a retention problem, there's nobody to take over the transfer of knowledge. And there's nobody to continue the work that's being done. Um, and the retention rate, I'd say is less than, sometimes some years it's less than 25%. And where are these people going? Well, it's after the first year that they would get trained that they start to get a fear. I mean, the money is good, so they go, hey, you, I'll buy that car, you know? <laughs> and then they go, wait, you know? It's a job, like, I'm going to have to take care of, of pipes, or I'm going to have to clean this, or I'm going to have to do this maintenance, or they get scared because every day they got to go get scanned, or there's some reason why in this workforce that the new folks aren't staying. This is before, a little bit before the millennials. As I was preparing the course, it was fall 2009 that I taught an introduction to nuclear engineering. There was no more nuclear engineering course at Ole Miss. And, um, and I was from a grant from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I had 18 students that were all except for two undergraduates, so 16 undergraduate, two graduate students. And I asked them, what's going on? You know, tell me why you wouldn't go into nuclear. And they said, because we're scared. I said, what if I told you the salary was 10% more than anywhere else or 20% more than anywhere else? So we, we think about it. Yeah, the money talks. And I said, and what about if you went after training and you learned this, this, and this? And they went, uh, you know, I think maybe they don't know what they're getting into. So the point was that we're going to, as some of them said it sounded like I might as well pick a plant manager job anywhere that I want to. And sometimes these, these um, the other students would say, um, I still remember, he goes, these plants are in the middle of nowhere. And he, he's not wrong. I mean, <laughs> so there's few people entering then there's few people retaining and after the course i did a survey and said now what do you think about nuclear now that you understand the safety but it took education a whole semester to do that and they said now it's okay now i understand it now i'd be willing to work in it for the right price and i was like what was the right price i said 20 percent." they said yeah so it's it just I think there's a, the engineers themselves need to be educated. And the other thing they don't know is everybody thinks you have to be a nuclear engineer to be 
working in a nuclear and power plant. I'm like, right. no. I mean, there's only, what, like 20 programs in the U.S. for nuclear engineering? No, 95% of their hires are other kinds of engineers, you know? <laughs> I was like, you didn't know that? Yeah, I was coming out as a civil and got hired in. Of course, they need civils for everything. They got roads. They got all kinds of structures. They got every kind of possible material you could imagine. So... When you when you look at the technical universities in the United States, obviously, <clears throat> I think we can probably throw a dart at the the ones that are non-technical universities, and probably we know what the sentiment is probably there. But let's let's talk about the technical universities. What do you what do you think the sentiment is these days in the universities, um, in the engineering departments about nuclear? What do you what do you think is going on there, and do you see it really improving, or do you see that it's really at a real low? I have had, and I can I can speak for um, a couple of, uh, I've had, there is really no in-between that I've seen. I've seen um, certain faculty I've talked to say, it's dead. It's dead. It's a dead industry. Why are you even bothering with it? And then I'll see a whole other group say, oh, it's strong. It's alive. You know, good. Go work on that. You know, there's nothing in between. It's it's polar opposites, and and I'm nothing I ever think of as polar opposites. I'm kind of always in between somehow. But <laughs> I understand why people say it's dead. If you want something new design, it's dead. It's been dead since 1970. For there are new designs, but nobody's built them. So then, what about maintenance? From that perspective, it's alive. In fact, all of the ways that nuclear power vessels and plants can have issues, right, is, you know, brittle and ductile fracture, fatigue, failures. You can have radiation problems. You know, there's radiation makes materials brittle. You know, hot, cold, powers, piping. Oh, my gosh, these plants have so much piping. And then... The other aspect that people, and I would say academics and technical universities don't recognize, but plants uh, and the government recognizes, is the waste. The waste products are very, very important. And I believe environmental engineering places could, could, you know, hook up a little bit with chemical engineering and come up with some better solutions if everybody got together. But the waste facilities are at currently at each site near the reactors. Now, they are very enriched still, the waste byproducts. So they could be used for other things, but mainly they just sit there in these containment vessels. And that is a whole other problem that can be addressed with a, a tackle of engineers and a tackle of politicians to figure out what's going on and where right. to move things and how to combine and, you know. Well, let's let's talk about that for just a moment. Um, I want to go back just, just briefly, and I want to ask you about um, really, really quickly, back to the retention and the workforce. What What, what is this, a suggestion uh, to the nuclear utilities and the nuclear industry? What do you see as a suggestion that they should really consider to improve that retainment rate and improve 
new people entering into the new talent entering into the industry what do you what would you recommend to the utilities and, and the nuclear power industry I think they're doing a I think they're doing a great job um, I don't know that they can change a public perception um, I think that they commercial I think they do a very nice job. I don't have any complaints. The Southern Nuclear Energy were very helpful with me. Um, I just would like to see more partnerships like that. I would like to see them reaching out to career fairs, you know, and they still, they, they came to our career fair and the university was like, oh, we don't have nuclear, so you don't need to come. I'm like, what? No, they come, you know? <laughs> so sometimes I think it's the university perception i think it's the student perception i think it's the public perception i don't think that the nuclear power industry can do anything different unless they want to throw a little more money into uh, recruiting and maybe maybe starting this kind of um, seminar or starting this kind of course at multiple universities because i think there needs to be some education of academia to understand that there's a, a market there and an education of the students to understand that there's a market there. Because even after I did this course, I didn't have a whole lot of support um, because it came from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I didn't have a whole lot of support at this university. They were like, okay, whatever, nuclear's over, you know, or they said it's in, that should be in chemical engineering or we don't have a nuclear engineering department, you know? I mean, that's the truth. So everybody um, just has to be educated, I think. And then I think people don't realize when I say 20% of your power comes from nuclear, they go, what? Yeah. And it, and they think those cooling towers, the hyperbolic cooling towers, they always think that that's putting out fog. And I said, no, that's just steam. That's heat pollution, okay? That's not carbon, you know, gases now if it's uh, – coal-fired plant that is smog and carbon gases. <laughs> it might look similar to you, but it's not, you know? And so on that on that topic, I want to ask you this. Going back to the utilities and the nuclear power industry, do you think that there's some stuff that they could do on improving that front of perception? Is there is there some some campaigns? Is there some things that they can do? And if so, what, what are your thoughts on that? How can they maybe start to break through and, and really get that message out? I think they have to, when they try to put a plant in place or try to make changes to a plant. Um, and there hasn't been new ones in so long that that's where the disconnect was made. And I don't think there's been a national campaign to be able to do any of that. I think you would have to have a bill to build new plants, to approve to build new plants that would cause a little controversy. And then they would be able to, to join together in some agency that may already exist for commercial companies. And then mount an educational campaign in the forms of commercials, in the forms of ads, in the forms of pamphlets, those kinds of things. And specifically, I think now, without the bill, they could target universities. I don't understand. I think it could get out through the university with education because everybody's talking about sustainability. I want people to think that it's not just renewables. 
they don't realize that the most cost-effective long-term power source is nuclear energy. And that is extremely sustainable because of the nature of uranium. And I want them to be able to include that in curriculum over the U.S. I think that there's there's a lot more they can do on that front. And um, looking Maybe at the you U.S. Have ideas. And, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that there should also be, you know, it's it, it's difficult. You always got to weigh the economics in it. And in the U.S., it, it is a place today of, of really a lot of red tape. And there are some good things about that. And there's also some bad things about that. And, and I think that if you look at the two uh, projects they have uh, being built out, um, there's been some tweaks to the, to the, to the design. Uh, obviously, the contractor doing it uh, probably uh, does not have a lot of experience in that in those design tweaks. Uh, it's over budget, uh, change order city uh, from a contractor mm -hmm. perspective. Um, and I know I know there's been a little bit of support from the Department of Energy. Or um, I think that uh, one, you have to go back and look, get back to basics. Um, you know, we there is a design that exists that's extremely robust. Uh, very, very good system. Uh, sure, you might make some updates and make some simple changes, but overall, uh, you know, the the design that exists is really robust already. So, if it if it isn't broke, don't fix it. Um, that kind of scenario, and so I think that's important to look at. But with that, I think that you know, yeah, you mentioned a number of things. You know, meetings. Uh, you know, work with the agencies directly. Uh, a lot in the universities. There needs to be efforts there. There needs to be efforts online, social media. Uh, I think you really need to go after, use all the available vehicles and technology that's available now to to really get that message out and really to, to set the facts straight. And the fact is, is that at the end of the day, um, sure, like you said before, no energy source is perfect, but there are some that are near perfection. And the reason nuclear power is near that perfection level is because of the history. Um, you know, we, we people talk, you know, there's a lot of fear about, oh, radiation, radiation. Well, you know, last I checked, the sun radiates. We receive that. Um, mm -hmm. And one thing I've always been curious about, Elizabeth, is how much radiation do we receive off of our cell phones? Um, <laughs> what what happens there? What's what's the history? What's the history oh of cell gosh. phone use? How does that work? I mean, do we By really way, know the effects? Um, if you fly cross country, and this is something that I learned, um, if you fly cross country, you could earn, you could have about four times an X-ray, uh, four times the X-rays that you had in a whole year of just one flight. Um, in fact, if you were, if you were um, Sitting outside in the sun, it could be for one day, it could be more than an x-ray. Uh, the natural radiation that we get from from everything, sun, space, um, you know, I go around with, I talk to students and, and younger kids, and I go around with a Geiger counter, and I always find somebody who goes off because they had a banana that morning because potassium is, is uh, radioactive. And they're like, oh, what? You know, <laughs> I always have a lot of fun with that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, you have granite countertops. They put that off. And, and I hate to say radon because that gives you, you know, lung cancer. That's true. But um, cell phones, uh, the, the current idea is that they're non-ionizing. So maybe they're okay. 
How do you like that? Is that a good answer? Um, <laughs> and the food, a lot of our food is irradiated, and people don't know that because it gives it a lot more time on the shelves, especially the fresh produce. So um, there are a lot of ways that we can soak in radiation every day. And I think um, every time I I try to talk to somebody about it, and I don't know that I would say that it's a, a near perfect, even I, because the first impression that you see is the mushroom cloud. As soon as you see the mushroom cloud, you're instantly scared. It's just your first instinct. So that is just a human nature thing that you have to really overcome with education. There's no other option. That that emotional response is so much and so strong that, you know, me, I was got called by a company to go work for them. And I was like, ah, what is this stuff? Let me go take a look. And I look up and the first thing I find is the mushroom cloud. And so if you're trying to overcome that, you have to then go and say, but you have to realize, you know, you get this much per year already, and you get this much per year, and this is all, if you live near the nuclear power plant, you're still not going to get it. You're still not going to get, it's not, it's contained, it's all contained, you know, and you have to tell people that what's inside of the nuclear power plant does not explode. That's not a mushroom cloud. That's not the same kind of, of nuclear, you know, content enrichment is you try to explain what's inside of there might the way we design it is to go down not up you know <laughs> and the way that we make sure that whatever is contained is it's got inside of inside of inside of three safes you know and then they start to go it's just that emotional response that ruins things that first mushroom cloud I think and you know it's it's interesting. Let's take it down to a level of an automobile. I mean, we've got gas. Let's just take a gasoline automobile. Uh, that is taking a fuel, putting it into a combustion engine, and you're really taking that fuel and harnessing it inside of a combustion engine. And but what happens if you take that five gallon can of gas and you chuck a match on it in your backyard? It's an uncontrolled response and uh, I think that people need to understand that that a nuclear bomb is an uncontrolled response and, and obviously uh, way different in terms of enrichment whereas a commercial reactor is a is a controlled response with a, a, a very very low level um, it's like taking your gasoline and diluting it with water um, it, it's it's very and it's also a controlled response in a new commercial nuclear reactor um, from from again a system that has been devised by some of the Arguably, some of the best talent that that uh, that humans have seen, and so it's it's really really important to understand those facts. And imagine that, for example, if the first time that you were in a vehicle, that the very first time you ever drove a vehicle, you crashed. How comfortable are you yeah. going to be getting back in it? Though? <laughs> so that's correct. Sometimes that that emotional fear kind of wins over whatever rationality so you've got to go on to a campaign I, I was going to tell you when I was teaching this course right in the middle of the course um, one of the students stood up and just said wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute you're telling me 
that this nuclear power plant is just a steam power plant? And I said, yes. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So the nuclear only makes the water hot so we can turn turbines to get energy. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So wait a minute, that's different than if we use a gas engine to turn the turbine. But that's the same difference. I said, yeah. Just, <laughs> it was just that suddenly it clicked that it's just a different way to turn a turbine so that we get power. A highly so efficient way. The bottom of it down. Yeah. It's it's just a different way to turn it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's it's really interesting. Again, the 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 economic benefits from from nuclear power. Uh, the United States as a base case is 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 very very impressive uh, compared to any other form. Now look, yes, there's there's there has been accidents and there's those things have happened and there are challenges. We've got some waste challenges to deal with. But if you go back and you look at wind and solar waste, <laughs> how big are those challenges? That, that's when you start to question. That's right. And it's also uncontrolled yeah. waste to some degree that we really have not set up a system for tracking, whereas nuclear, uh, you know, the spent fuel rods are, are calculable. We know exactly where they're at. We know exactly how to protect them. We know how to secure them and so forth. And um, that's that's the point. That's the whole key of, of this of this. Uh, people to understand. And so I, I want to go back, let's talk about nuclear waste for a sec. So so give us give us a take on what you see, quantify for us the nuclear waste that exists. Uh, let's use maybe the United States for as an example. Quantify for us that and, and just kind of for, for the audience who doesn't understand it, give us kind of a, an overview of, of really what the waste is. People think of the Simpsons and maybe a, a green goo, uh, but but really give us give us <laughs> what it really is. And, and tell us about that and, and also tell us about really the size. And then obviously we've got a little bit of recycling technology that's going on. Um, so, so walk us through that and, and really quantify for us the amount of waste that really is produced compared to this long history of commercial nuclear power. Well, the, the amount of waste that the rods themselves last a very long time, I believe it's over 16 months and they're rotated in and out and um, part of the the waste that comes out of there first know that the humans that are involved it's mostly mechanized now so they take a crane lift them out and then put them into a beautiful beautiful pool <laughs> we took a we took a field trip and the second level was a beautiful pool. The second level of containment was a beautiful pool. And the students said, we just want to jump in and swim. And I was like, oh, maybe you don't want to do that. And But the basic idea is that you want to cool and you want to contain. And water is an excellent blocker of all this radiation. So it's kind of like things sitting in a pool. And um, the idea is, is that every one of these plants across the nation, 100 plus-ish, are going to have a place like this where you're going to store those expended fuel rods. Um, and there's not that many, and it's not that big, even if it's been in a very large place. I don't know that I can quantify it in terms of tons. Maybe you can, but um, I would say that 
my concern and one of the concerns that Nuclear Regulatory Commission has, has wanted to say is, can we combine them because the safety at 104 100 and something sites versus the safety at one site would be really nice. And that would be a benefit to ensure the safety everywhere and make it temporary. So a lot of them on site are called temporary storage, even though there's not a permanent storage yet. And there was lots of talk and controversy over Yucca Mountain many years ago. And, and I don't know where that personally, I don't know where that stands. It kind of seemed to die out. So um, yes, all that is governed by agencies. Yes, there's inspectors. Yes, they make sure none of that is getting out. Um, yes, they can be stored very small and very tightly. In fact, the uranium pellets, very, very tiny, that, that are being used to, to put in there. Um, compared to the, you know, meters cubed, it can't even be compared physically to the amount of greenhouse gases that come out, but that's solid versus gases as well. Um, one of the things that, that I think is really important is to know that the recycling can be done. So those rods could be taken or that uranium still has a lot of power in it. And if those things could be taken out, um, technically the military rods could then be taken down to commercial rods if everything could work magically you know, and then those um, commercial rods could be taken down to whatever source is needed for a smaller vessel, example, research reactors, for example, um, medical research. What about the isotopes that they use as tracers when you get the MRIs or the CAT scans? Um, all those things could be used and created from those rods. Uh, and sometimes that's done, um, and that would prevent the waste and let it go to a lower level, and eventually it gets to a more inert level. Um, however, at this point, that's very, very expensive. Um, the recycling process is pricey. Um, enrichment is also pricey. So at this point, those those that's not widely enough done in my opinion for us to make use of all the waste um, instead of just storing it at the hundred sites yeah and, and there is there is a, a number of things that are happening there and and obviously the the expense is the biggest inhibitor uh, of of that recycle work and obviously you know a lot of utilities weigh well you know, just store it. And really, why do we, you know, the, the expense of recycling is really, why don't we just go get new fabricated assemblies and, and go through the fuel cycle right. and just start over. Right. But talk, talk to us about just briefly about, so you have this, you have this spent fuel rod assemblies. Talk to us really how complicated it is for, let's, let's say, let's say for the security standpoint talk about how really complicated it is to to be able to steal something like this and then and then use it mm -hmm. uh obviously you've got to have some other technology and infrastructure <laughs> to be able to use it in a way that could be used yeah. um, in, in an intent of a bomb so i think people really miss that you know someone could just show up and rip something off and then all of a sudden it becomes a bomb it's not like that at all it's extremely complex and complicated and you have to be highly sophisticated to be able to do that can you can you just speak to that for a moment um, on my website, 
I had my students in fall of 2009 um, uh, write journals about the field trip because you can't take pictures inside the secure facility. We went to St. Francisville, Louisiana um, to, to introduce plants down there. They were ex excellent hosts for us and they let us tour the plant and they let us go inside facilities. And so I had the students write a, um, each one write a journal about what they saw. You're welcome to read, but they all remarked about security, security, security. Did we really have to go through this many times, this many times, this many times? We had to get scanned. They had to check this, you know? And it was, first of all, access to get to the area. Second of all, you gotta have a crane <laughs> because you're not gonna get the rods out. And third of all, what can you use it for? You can't up enrich it without having something else. So uh, the, the equipment is not um, something that you're going to buy online. You know, <laughs> it's not an eBay. This isn't an eBay thing, you know. <laughs> so if somebody says that they've got uranium-235, the enriched kind, the most enriched, dangerous kind, you know they had to get it from some, you know, military source from somewhere that had enriching processes that have the everything possible because they didn't get it from the plant next door to you. It's not right. even there to start with. It's already in a lower state than that. You know, um, there is the concern, uh, people say, of a dirty bomb, but the dirty bomb would not come from these power plants. It would have to come from an even smaller, you know, like, local lower level value than even what this is it, i mean i don't even i can't even imagine where that would come from in the u.s and, and that's that's the whole point i think that you know if 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 there are those actors who want something uh there's plenty of other countries you could solicit it from and probably at a less yeah. less cheaper and less sophisticated price and so I think that, that that people seem to miss that significantly. And the storage facilities, there is no risk to the person walking through, like on your tour. There is there is no risk yeah. in that form. I want to mm -hmm. I want to switch switch over for a moment. I want to focus just for a second. Uh, I want to talk briefly about Fukushima. Now, when when Fukushima hit in 2011, kind of go take us back there and and t and what went through your mind. And what position do you do you have regarding nuclear today versus what was maybe your view prior to Fukushima uh, from a you know science and safety and economic based view? Tell us tell us about what your thoughts were on Fukushima. What really, in your view, was the breakdown there at Fukushima, and and did it change your view on nuclear power? So I think I think when it comes to earthquake design, just a little background. Um, Forever and a day, um, earthquake structural design has been controlled by either the San Andreas Fault or um, Tokyo earthquakes or Kobe earthquakes or something in Japan. So those are our two extremes for earthquake design. So when I heard about Fukushima, I said, now here is a place where they designed for earthquakes. It's on an earthquake area, you know. I know Japan is an excellent, very smart, you know, civilized, you know, very well-designed, full of engineers country. So I know they did their job. 
I know it'll be fine. And I believe that it would have been fine, except fire. Fire is not a really good thing when it comes to when it comes to any structure. And specifically, there's a lot of steel usually in some of these structures, a lot of metal. And so you could have some melting that goes on inside of the plant itself that could cause damage. And so I think to me that that was my first thought was I'm more concerned about how long this goes on. I'm not so concerned about the initial whatever happens. I'm more concerned about, you know, the aftermath and what's going on. A tsunami itself, um, how do you ever know what it's going to do, right? But I, I would absolutely believe that it's planned. Now, if this was, um, let's say, a power plant, and I have a list of countries that are looking for some, some power plants. What if this was on the edge of Myanmar? Or, or maybe Indonesia. They've got some engineers. They've got great engineers, too. But maybe they don't take all the precautions and they're on the edge of the, you know, maybe they don't have as many earthquakes and then they have a sudden tsunami. We know they've had that. There's a couple of, um, I, I might have had a different impression from some of the other countries. So then when I, when I start to see what's going on, I'm following it like everybody else. But I'm not as scared, I don't believe. Everybody thinks it's going to, you know, explode. I said, no, the worst thing that happens is that you have a release or you have a meltdown and you have a release into groundwater. You have some water resources. I mean, it's also a little bit farther away from some civilization. I, you know, um, in the end, I think, uh, of course, the media is going to, going to show it as something huge because it proves the point and and there's always going to keep being these little reminders that the mushroom cloud is real that radiation is dangerous but i don't think it was as big that was played up to be personally as far as what actually happened i've seen multiple stories and that seems weird because you know uh again what really happens versus what they tell you happened I- i'm not quite sure but my suspicion is that anytime we see a fire in one of these facilities, that's where I'm most concerned. In fact, um, the, the lack of water is what's the most concerning for everybody. And that sounds weird because, you know, there was plenty of salt water. Yeah, but it's, you keep all of the water separated in these plants so that you don't cross-contaminate things. So you need to have water inside of the core, for example, to cool it. If you don't have water inside, then it overheats and then starts to want to melt down. So put some salt water in there. It's an emergency. And then you'll be fine. And it was on a coast, and most of them were on a coast. So we were fine. It was just we had a lot of fire going on. So how do we get everything in there? Highly unfortunate. Um, but again, there's there's always uh, things that can be improved, and I, I believe that uh, that is being done in Japan. It's it's evident that the the government there is working towards restarting the reactors. Uh, that that's happened. That's that's in progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe we're somewhere around the 10, 10 reactors have been restarted. And in a country like Japan, 
nuclear power really is the best solution they have they're not they're not huge you, you can't cover the entire island of solar panels and wind it's not possible you can't sit there and import lng it's way too expensive it doesn't make sense you know they're, they're trying to do some clean coal technologies and so forth but at the end of the day the, the finger is pointed back towards a restart they've improved significantly and there'll be a number of reactors that continue to restart. Um, you know, the situation is sad. My, my understanding was that uh, specifically to uh, Fukushima, there was a disruption in the ability of the folks to get diesel to the backup generators for the cooling. And so one, once those things did not have any diesel, the plants, the backup plant shut off. And of course, you know, the rest of the story. Um, that that was my understanding of the situation there. And then also there's there's been there there is some truth behind uh, some of the other plants that were much closer to the epicenter of the quake and really took on uh, other other parts of the tsunami, depending on where they were placed in the coves and so forth. If you look at the, the geographic uh, view there from where the epicenter was, there was a number of plants that operated perfectly fine. Uh, they were all shut down at one point due to the order of the government. But uh, there is all these other, I think there was at the time, uh, some 40, 42 reactors that were in operation. Um, all the rest were fine. And uh, they all got shut down because of what happened. But uh, there was also a number of accounts of people actually going to these facilities for protection. So I think that speaks a number of other points that nobody wants to talk about. But uh Aside from the larger the, situ the larger economic situation and the benefit of nuclear uh, in total, I mean, certainly it's an unfortunate accident and uh, very sad. And I'm sure a number of people will remain to be traumatized mm -hmm. that were there, and some of the first responders mm -hmm. that I'm sure there are other accidents that were that also occurred as a yeah. uh, collateral damage to what actually happened. Um, so I want to want to go back uh, and talk about another subject. Um, what do you see on climate change? What is your view on climate change uh, and some of the some of the viewpoints out there? And what do you think needs to happen going forward with the with the climate change situation? What's what's kind of your just give us your broad overview of, of climate change and, and what do you think uh, is your view on it overall? Well, it exists, so <laughs> that's the first thing. Anybody denying that it exists, I, I'm suspicious. Um, the, what is causing the climate change, we can disagree on. Even some scientists say they disagree upon. We all know greenhouse gases contribute, but greenhouse gases come from multiple sources, a lot of natural. Um, yes, we are, are hurrying forward the death of the earth, if you want to think of it that way. Um, but so is a lot of other things that are natural. The earth goes through cycles. The ice age, for example, where the oceans dropped 10, 20, 30 feet, put all the ice on the surface of the earth. Uh, it, it's part of the nature of our planet. And in geological times, we're trying to think of things as in, well, this year we have Santa Ana winds and next year we're gonna have even harder, you know, or the earthquake season, I mean, the hurricane season this year and the hurricane season next year. And I say, yeah, but I think that, the, that those are all, you know, nothing on geological times, like 10,000 years versus 5,000 years is what we're talking about, you know, for geological times. So um, I think that the climate 
this climate change folks should really be controlled. That discussion should be controlled by a lot of geology and geologists. I think that they have the understanding of the carbon in the air and the carbon in the atmosphere and and my opinion is a lot seated to what they say. Um, but personally, I would say, yes, I think that we one day the Earth will end up looking like Mars, for example. But I can't tell you if it's going to be 2 billion years, or I can't tell if it's going to be 1.9 billion. I can't tell if we get rid of cars, is it going to be 1 billion? Or is it going to be 200, you know, years? I, I, these are all like lengths of time. Um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't minimize. But that also, in my head, says that for climate change, we should minimize without killing our economy. Again, healthy planet versus healthy economy is, is kind of the way my brain works. So I want to minimize all everything I know contributes to climate change because I know it exists, but I want to do it in such a way that I don't kill everything that is making our economy go. Right. I, I think that's a key point. I think that uh, people so often want to throw economics under the bus, but then they fail to realize that really the economics is what got us here in the first place. We're able to address and, yeah. and, 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 and abate and mitigate climate issues because the country is still powerful and, and has wealth and has has things to be able to do that uh, imagine imagine a, a a country and i can't think of one at the moment but imagine a country that is not in that situation a third world country that has no economic avail availability to mitigate anything in their country related to environment and so i think people need to keep that in mind the economics are the driver of everything else we're able to enjoy and right. and repair right. and fix and so that's really the key point. Right. I want to move on. Let's talk about nuclear power growth in emerging economies and other other nations, mm -hmm. uh, namely places like China, India. The the U.S. Uh, is doing a deal with India to do construct uh, to work on constructing, I think, some six uh, new reactors in India. There's been a really hard drive by India and China to to uh, get a lot of, a lot more nuclear into their mix. Um, Saudi Arabia is, is is looking to partner with with somebody, maybe maybe the U.S., China, and Russia, everybody together, to do something there yeah. in Saudi Arabia. So talk talk to us about the, the the growth of nuclear globally, and then also tell me tell me your thoughts on uh, the U.S. really maintaining that market share, and as they compete with Russia and China for kind of global nuclear deals. Yeah. Um I was looking at the World Nuclear Association um, information. I, I have some, I have a little bit of fears when it's coming to the Russian involvement. Um, one of the market shares, this could be a way, because we know Russia has lots of experience with nuclear power, um, and they're not necessarily a friendly country. I'm not quite sure how it's defined, but as of right now, they have 25 um, countries that are looking at contracts, 25 different countries. And that, while the U.S. has India, as you're saying, um, think about how much financial benefit they're going to get out of that. 
with one design, for example, that they could put in all those different places in all those different countries and also have the ability, one of them, by the way, is Kazakhstan, which is one of the biggest in, um, ore producers that's out there. So if they have control of the biggest ore producer, then they have a control of 25 country contracts to be able to build multiple power plants in each country um, while we have India, which is not nothing, but come on, you know, <laughs> um, this would be a way that Russia can get a foothold into the entire world's politics, not only that, but have control. If you have control over people's power, couldn't you have control over more than that? But maybe that's just me being paranoid. You know, it's just my brain thinking, first of all, there's a little bit of political concern I have. But then the other thing is financially, we're losing out on, you know, sharing or at least passing some of those contracts. And, you know, maybe if we got 10 of them, how many more jobs would we get and how much more money could we come through that? That's there's a lot there and a discussion on this alone just with the politics and energy but there's no doubt that energy plays a huge role in how politics and how countries can control other countries so if you're a country like russia who really offers that complete package hey we'll offer up the operators we'll finance it we'll give you the right. fuel we we own we own the fuel cycle we'll provide you all the fuel we'll, we'll give you everything right. um so when they offer a complete package like that, you know, countries tend to bite. But then in return, Russia gets to control a heavy-duty portion of that infrastructure. And so that that is the whole trick. That is a concern. And it, from a from a U.S. citizen standpoint or, a, you know, a person that lives in the United States, uh, that is a concern looking out there. Um, and obviously, I, I certainly share that. There are some security issues with that. And then you have China, which is really doing the same. They, they're integrating a complete package as well, where they want to control their own fuel cycle. They want to be able to, to own the mines and, and do all this and really have a complete package. Um, and obviously, we know that the construction uh, globally, uh, when you look at these places like India and China and Russia and other places where they might be building them, uh, Turkey, for example, uh, UAE as well, um, Obviously, that the costs are lower uh, than building in a place like the United States or in Britain, uh, and obviously, the, we know the French are very efficient at what they do with nuclear power. Oh, yeah. um, and so, so that's the whole, you know, the cost. You know, obviously, China is able to roll these out uh, quite well. Um, obviously, you know, you could always question the, the quality, uh, but we can certainly all say that uh, they've, they've. I'm sure there's a huge amount. There's no other industry that I can think of. Uh, that really provides a real huge focus on on quality and safety, uh, given given what they're dealing with has a huge amount of, of potential and power that can both be beneficial and also destructive. Um, so it's really interesting what's happening. You have a place like the U.S. who used to lead in nuclear power, and and arguably in some places still is, and there's certainly an attempt by the current administration to start to get back on that global stage where they have a seat at the nuclear energy table and the nuclear table altogether, um, where the U.S. you have is, is you know falling behind, whereas folks like Russia and China are picking up. And and we know Russia likes to control energy. I mean, if you look at Europe and you look at natural gas pipelines and, and the challenges that are going on there, um, it's it's obvious that Russia wants to 
have an influence in that way, and it absolutely can be used as as a political weapon, um, and really a social weapon and everything else. It could be used in multiple ways, and so I really think it's it's interesting. Um, but also just the fact that countries like India and China, namely, because they're the largest, they're the largest constructors of, of new nuclear power infrastructure, uh, it's really impressive what those countries are doing, and yet they have the two largest populations on Earth, and uh, their their push is get away from coal and get away from these things that are polluting yeah. uh, the air and, and really killing their people. And for a country of that size, uh, with that population base, I don't see where you can really use another form of energy uh, as, I mean, you can certainly mix and you can have other parts and pieces, components, but really right. for that size, for that size of population and that kind of power demand, the real only answer, uh, I'll wait, is, is you got to have nuclear. And I think those those two countries have, have decided that. They figured it out. They're putting their money where their mouth is. It's obvious with the construction that's going on. So I think it's really interesting that where nuclear power might be dying in the United States, uh, it's certainly growing around the world. So the United States can help lead that export of of this commercial reactor technology. And then also you mentioned it. The economics, the talent can, you know, United States talent go overseas and and help these other folks get up to speed. And I think there's a lot of opportunity economically for the United States. And like we just mentioned it, the United States would that would continue United States influence uh, via energy infrastructure in these other countries, because obviously if the U.S. is going to build plants, there's probably some types of deals that have to do with the, the fuel cycle and, and who provides that fuel and who operates and so forth. And so I think it's a, a key piece that's occurring in the world where a lot of folks in the United States, they they jump on Google and they type in, do nuclear power plants still exist? Well, I worry a little bit about the, the when you say about the U.S. sharing things kind of with other countries because of the, and, and it might have been my military time, but I, I think about the need to know and security issues about um, information exchange. Um, you know, if China has their own designs, that's awesome. I uh, hope they check them as well as ours, but I hope they're not our designs that went to China, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but um, so I, I would think that there's probably a lot that will go in there uh, once U.S. decides that they are going to do these contracts, it's still going to take 10 to 20 years to build one of these. Um, so it's it's a matter of can we perhaps, even if Russia's in on some of these, perhaps we can, I don't want to say undercut, but offer something that Russia doesn't, which is the more trust politically to be able to get in on it. But again, I'm not the political expert, but that would get us a better market share by saying, hey, now you can say you have, uh, you know, an American pressurized water reactor, you know? Right. I think, I think that's really key. And when I, when I mentioned sharing, I, I meant, I, I mean to say that uh, if we don't, get out there and lead that charge that we control. We're able to control how that information is shared, how it's built, how it's operated, share that knowledge base. Right. Or we don't do it, we sit back and we and we allow Russia and China to do the sharing. And which would you rather have, sharing that you control or right. just uncontrolled sharing by other countries? And obviously right. we know China, India, 
uh, we, you know, Japan, Korea, Taiwan. We know we know a lot of these countries. Uh, Korea, Korea is certainly making deals. The French are making deals. Um, there are those types of uh, situations that are going on, and so I think that uh, if if the United States does not get back into that leadership role of of the, sharing that technology and regulating the technology, um, I think that it leaves the door open for others to kind of take that position and and some of those others you you may not from a u.s uh, political standpoint you may not want uh, in that chair and so that's that's kind of the concern that i have so i you know and that's that's speaking from you know for, for us as u.s citizens i think it's 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 key to to be looking at that security interest and uh not not allowing you have to compete on that global stage and uh, not just at in at home in the united states but also on the global stage as well so I want to talk just a little bit more about uh, another topic. Some of the some of the t technology that's, that's starting to roll out. Um, you see uh, over in Oregon, you see New Scale Power working their way through the NRC to implement a, a PWR small modular reactor design. That right now the economics actually uh, are becoming quite. Uh, We'll see when they when they build it or if they build the first one, but the economics are starting to line up. And then you have Rolls Royce uh, leading the charge as well towards SMRs. I believe China. I don't know the name of the company, but in China there certainly is some SMR work. Uh, we know we know that uh, Russia has some work on that side, and and also um, in Canada there's an SMR group that's that's working on small modular reactors up there. So there's really kind of a push towards this and and with that i just want to highlight again for the audience who isn't really aware of it you know you could you could argue that small modular reactors have really existed for a long time in in nuclear or i'm sorry in military applications specifically with nuclear submarines and so forth uh we know that you know russia has some some uh floating you know nuclear reactor icebreaker units and and so forth and and these different types of uh applications that have really already implemented uh, a small-scale design what's your thoughts on this coming out from military and being maybe potentially deployed on a commercial basis in a smaller scale uh, where you have manufactured facilities that build these things and and you no longer have this uh, really really large power plant construction potentially what do you think of this angle and do you think it'll catch traction could you imagine? Um, could you imagine your barbecue in the back grill, something that size, being instead the power for your whole house, all the time, no problems, no bills, no nothing, and then after a few what years, you change it out for a new grill, or you change out some piece of it, and then it starts up again. You know, wouldn't it be nice? Um, I think it's an awesome dream. The biggest concerns I have, honestly, are control. Who's going to monitor? Who's going to see what level is the uranium of enrichment? Um, who's going to make sure? I like the economic side is a whole other story. But again, as I always think, technical and safety and, elect and, um, and then economics. Because technically, it has to be, you know, safety, we word hand in hand. And so I want to make sure that my the risk is managed. So if it's something you're expecting to go in every backyard in the entire country, then 
you have a level of risk that's different than some place that maybe goes into every major market for electricity management. You know, maybe every major city, maybe every city with over a million people, maybe every city with over 100,000 people. You know, that's a different level of risk management at a different level of governance. So my first instinct is I say it's a very excellent idea because it's going to lower everybody's bills and we're all going to be happy after the capital investment part of it. But my concern then backs up to, okay, what about the waste? What about the regulation? What about that? I I, I think that is not there yet, and that will tie everything up for another how many years, you know? Right. No, I think there's some valid points uh, to what you said there, the, the concern about, you know, instead of having having to secure and take care of, you know, 98 facilities around the United States that might exist now as far as uh, commercial reactors that are operating. Yeah. Obviously, there's more there's more than that that need need secured. But the the expansion of that and how that applies, um, I think that there are some there are some efforts at, at certainly in the United States. And we'll see what the NRC has to say. But uh, I think there are some efforts in that regard to to look at what these SMRs are doing, and, and obviously there's there's a huge amount of the safety being addressed. And uh, to what scale are they going to come out at? You know, um, obviously the the initial design that's out there is a 60 megawatt uh, design that can be uh, hooked in with others to to get up to 720, I believe. But also, I think some of the applications outside of uh, you know mining projects. Obviously, we know that uh, mining is a is a something that is needed to to enjoy modern life um so some of these uh remote locations that might be able to enjoy power uh maybe there's some countries that uh, can't afford uh you know a 15 billion dollar nuclear power facility but maybe can afford a a cheaper smaller version of that um obviously a scaled version I mean, there's some good uses for having mobile power everywhere. I think we all would love to have our own generator. That's why I say that it'd be fantastic. I just want to make sure that that generator doesn't end up being thrown in something so that it pollutes the groundwater or something, you know. (laughs) I don't want it tossed away where now for the next half-life of 10,000 years, something is, you know, ruined, you know. Correct. Absolutely. So I think it'll be interesting to see how those kind of uh, get out there. And, and if something really happens to, to go there, I think the idea is is certainly interesting. And we know it's coming from a technology that, that's really been in the in the military applications for some time, specifically for the U.S. Um, I want to move on to one other subject or maybe kind of two. I want to talk kind of about just high level uranium. What's your thoughts on the uranium mining business? Uh, and maybe you can share some of that with us. And then, what do you? What's your thoughts on this uh, current Section 232 uranium petition that's uh, been completed by the Department of Commerce that's sitting on Trump's desk? One of the concerns is political that people have. I, I'm, again, I'm not the political type, but unfriendly countries produce about over 50% of what uranium ore comes out of, and, and that bothers a lot of people and that was that's the biggest thing now of course if you worked in the military and you need some uranium it's going to be american uranium now the bad news about that is we only have one percent one percent 
of what is mined used in the U.S. So we import 99%. And this reason that this is, is because uranium, it's all an economic thing. It was $140 a pound in the U.S. was mining this all a lot. Um, now it's $20 a pound. So the commercial industry is really happy. They're like, woo, let's import it. And so that was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy for now being down to one domestic company with about 500 employees and a few sites. I mean, just in 2009, I could tell you how a handful of states that were being mined out west, including New Mexico and Colorado and Utah. And now I can, in Nevada, all I can tell you is Utah. So the fact that U.S. production is down and importing is up, that has led to what's on Trump's desk, which is Section 232, and the U.S. producer says, please, can you tariff the other guys so we can get some of the market share? That's about as much as I know about big economics. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's just too much competition for them. And even Canada is combining with countries from other other places in the world, other countries. Uh, again, Kazakhstan is a huge producer now. African mines, which used to be independent, are being bought up. Like whole countries are joining up and, and independent. So I understand the point of view of the company wanting to stay alive, of course. And I think if we lose our last uranium mine, who's going to be able to um, provide for the military's uranium needs? However, there's one more factor in here, which is there's a lot stored. And the military seems to have a pretty good percentage stored. Uh, we'll never know, but I saw a study a while back that said they have 100% of what they need for one year stored. So they have a year backlog. Who knows? Um, and then the, a lot of the commercial industry has about 250% backlog. So they've got quite a bit of or what they needed stored or with subcontracts to be able to do that. So I think that the, the current mining need is pretty low is what, what seems to be. I'm not convinced that we want every mine to go. I think we need that mine, but I think we need it for military purposes, perhaps more than commercial purposes, because the free market is kind of balancing it right now. But that doesn't mean that once all these other ones are built and then the market jumps back up to $140, you wouldn't want to have the other mines open and don't let them close, you know? I'm kind of on both sides of everything. So. <laughs> well, no, I think you summarized it pretty well, and you said free market, which really caught me here. And I think what's happening in the free market is that uh, the supplies are being depleted, um, that the it's going to start getting uncomfortable for the utilities in the U.S. and Europe to continue to use their inventories. Um, that is starting to dwindle back down to levels that have not been seen for some time, if ever. Uh, we know that these reactors and, and uh, commercial nuclear power utilities like to have security of supply. They like to know that it's uh, readily available. And I think that challenge is really coming to a breaking point uh, soon, probably over the next couple of years, uh, where the mine production, uh, the market price, is obviously because the price is so low, 
there is an incentive to not really have any interest. There's no attractiveness to mine uranium at such low prices. If you're selling it at $20 in the market and, and it's taken you $35 to mine it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. And so over the last couple of years, if you look at some of the, you'll, you'll find that there is a significant amount of supply that has been cut off because of the low prevailing market price. And as you know, the markets in this type of commodity seem just like anything else. They have supply demand cycles and we're coming up on a demand demand side cycle with almost no supply. And so that is starting to become a real issue. And so I think that uh, Section 232 is I also think that it, there's a national security aspect and you touched on it with military need and some other issues. Um, also the commercial power reactors in the United States. Uh, you had a deal that was done last cycle with Uranium One and really is just a Russian owned uh, entity now that uh, controls a number of rights in the United States to, to mine Uranium. So there's really lining up to be some real issues where you have an industry and not just the mining side, but the fuel cycle as well. You know, your uh, your conversion, your enrichment. Yeah, um, enrichment process. That, yeah. that whole fuel cycle is in jeopardy as well. And so, yeah, you got some jobs. There's certainly some economics. There needs to be some. There's some jobs at stake, and there's there's some things that could change there. There are some economics, but you're really talking about that national security standpoint. Do you want to import all of your uranium needs from other countries? And I, you know, I, I get the argument that there are some, you know, there's some, there's, there's Canada, there's Australia, there are a few friendlies uh, that have it and that mine it, but still, that doesn't, that still does not get past the fact that do you have the capability yourself to do it? And there is, uh, that's the issue, that's the challenge. And I think that's what will probably, when it does come down, uh, to some degree, national security will weigh in a lot on the issue, and uh, what do you do? And so I think we're at a at a point in the cycle where you have inventories are decreasing, um, and there is a need to replenish that inventory. And the question is, is where and how does that get replenished? And uh, that comes back to the mining side. We we all know that uranium is pretty abundant in the world, but to actually get it refine it and get it to where it needs to go, that is the lack that we have. That is the challenge that exists. And so obviously the, the mining side is still the place where most of that comes out and is still the most economic place to get it. Uh, but obviously at uh, $20 or $25 a pound uranium, uh, there's not much incentive in the industry to go out and get it. So I really see that there's a bottleneck coming. I think that uh, from the, the fact the United States really needs to as still as a major nuclear power needs to maintain uh, the infrastructure and not let that go away. Because as it stands right, right now, as you said, roughly 50% is coming from those mm -hmm. potential so-called hostile nations. And if they decide to turn it off, you know, there's some challenges there. And uh, obviously the lead time required to bring back the infrastructure and build it out and, and get it back up to capacity to supply the industry is the challenge and you don't really want to be caught uh, with your pants down, so to, so to speak, um, on this issue. And so that's, that's kind of what I well, see it with sounds it. Like, and, uh, it sounds like you support that, Bill. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I, I don't care if it well, passes or not, because I think what happens, Elizabeth, is uh, even, if, even if there is no action, the industry is so critical that it will have to work itself out. The price of $25 will have to right. work itself out. And so even if right. there is no action, 
that's fine. It'll still work itself out. And so it's 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 really it is a nice uh, feature to kind of get the uh, get the ball going, kind of get a nice shock to the right. industry right. in the United States. But from a global standpoint and from a from a commodity price standpoint, uh, it's really irrelevant. Uh, it would just kind of speed things up, perhaps for the U.S. But at the end of the day, you still have a significant supply demand problem coming, and you have utilities that. Uh, if you go back and you look at the contracting that happened with utilities to get their inventories built up during the last cycle, which really happened kind of between 2004 and 2010, there was a period of, there's a number of years where there is significant volume contracting for uranium. And uh, that is yet to happen again because there has not been any significant contracting uh, since then. And so you have that kind of that new cycle starting to come in. And I think the biggest piece at the end of the day is, Nobody's interested in digging it, refining it, and and sending it off to the uh, the conversion facility uh, when it, you can yeah. only get you know twenty five dollars a pound. It doesn't work, and so when right. the economics doesn't work, you start to build a supply problem, and and I think that's starting to come in. And obviously, we know last time that one of the key drivers that helped with that not only was there oversupply already coming because of the uranium price at one forty, like you mentioned. Uh, that in itself solved some supply issues. When you have uranium at 140, uh, it kind of helps fulfill that prophecy of, well, there's going to be supply coming in because everybody's going to want to switch and start looking at building uranium mines because that's where the good price is. And then, of course, the last thing that really wiped it out, as you know, was uh, Fukushima 2011, mm -hmm. really dampened the spirits of the entire sector. Mm -hmm. And uh, so here we are today. So I think it's really interesting to see this cycle turn and then come back around. I'm a little uh, concerned about the enriching equipment myself, and I don't hear a lot about it. I don't know where that's taking place. I don't know how old it is. I don't know if that, because that's what we talk about when, when they talk about Iran. It's like, if they keep enriching, what are they doing with it? You know, if they keep building, um, refining and enriching facilities, then what are they doing? I don't know about the U.S.'s ability. I, I don't really know. <laughs> so that's, to me, something that's interesting. Uh, maybe you know a little bit more about it, but I would could be concerned that that's an obsolete process, obsolete equipment as well. Prices on that side aren't necessarily advantageous either. The infrastructure is wearing down, and there has not been any capital mm -hmm. reinvestment into new infrastructure to keep that capacity and as a result it's 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 falling apart so until there is a reason to input that capital to rebuild right. it you're you're right the the fuel cycle capacity in the united states from an infrastructure standpoint is severely lacking as it as compared to how it was you know decades ago and so that's a challenge. So that's the other question for the U.S. is, do we re retain that infrastructure and build it back up and get back up to speed? Or do we let other countries do that work for us? And so then you got to right. look to places like Canada, you know, Cameco, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, some of those, mm -hmm. you got to look over to the French. Uh, and mm -hmm. so, or, or you got to dig deeper and look to the Russians or the Chinese. And so that's, that's a real challenge. So it, that's another piece that is uh, lacking and, uh, it certainly is in need of repair. And, and the only the only way that that gets rebuilt is the utilities got to come out, they got to put out the orders, and obviously the utilities will deal with the, the conversion and enrichment process uh, and the fabricators. So 
that that means that there needs to be contracts made. Uh, they need to recontract, order materials, uh, get get the uh, supply contracts for the uranium ore um, coming from the mines, and then obviously they they control the utilities are controlling putting that through the fuel cycle. But the fuel cycle folks, they're not going to be too interested in pulling the trigger on anything until they know they've got those contracts in place. So this 232. Uh, could potentially jumpstart that, and so it's essentially, you know, a 25% uh, tariff or a 25% quota, um, where there's just a allocated amount that says U.S. utilities, you have to buy 25% of your requirements from U.S. domestic sources. And so when that happens, that will certainly change the dynamic, and then that will start to also influx the capital needed to get that 25% production done. So it's essentially a buy American if that's where they go um, to where you have to get that 25%. Now, how do we get to that 25%? We've discussed this many times on the show uh, in the past with other guests. That effort is going to require capital and time. And really to get to that 25% production level, the earliest you could say would probably be five years. And capital requirements, uh, really, you'd have to, you'd have capital requirements in the billions to get there. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's going to take time to ramp up because right now, as you said, 1% of the requirements or so is actually, is actually produced domestically right now. And it's really coming from really, uh, really one producer, maybe two, if you, if you really extended, but it's really energy fuels and you are energy. And so there's not much going on. And so you really need that kind of kick in the side to get going. But ultimately, if 232 doesn't do anything, then the supply demand dynamics will work themselves out either way. And that really, that bottleneck, if you take a look, is is really coming within the next couple of years, in my view, looking at the market and, and looking at what Cameco and Kazataprom have done as the market leaders, they've really cut down their production and uh, they have no intention to return to production until there's that uh, incentive to do so. And so that's kind of the outlook and on it. And I think it. We, and, uh, we have one more problem being that the U.S. has is um, decommissioning some of their reactors. And I believe by 2025, we're going to lose about 13, I think 13 reactors, if I counted right. Um, yeah. And that means we're going to lose some of our own demand and that we may not be at 20% anymore. We may go down to 19% before the two you mentioned get back up. So, um, right. And, and why do you think they're decommissioning? Because they're at the point where they just can't run anymore without not being safe. They've got too many problems, too many issues, too many, you know. And, and you know, the materials that were made do not last forever with all the electrons and neutrons and all the things bouncing around in there. You know, <laughs> it is just not a good right. place to be. So. Um, we have to start decommissioning, and at the same time, that's going to lower that that uranium demand value as well. Right, and there's there's no doubt that some will be de decommissioned, and and for some, it's certainly a business decision. You have to weigh the cost of trying to relicense, maintain, and upgrade to get that license. That's true to too. And so it's it's really boils down to some it'll be a business decision to to get rid of and uh, move on and then some as we've seen already there's been a little bit of support uh, for some to continue there has been some relicensing that's occurred but you're right there will be shutdowns 
but the nice thing is, uh, at least coming from my desk, is is there is plenty of new build construction happening in China and India to keep that demand on a yeah. global basis yeah. actually increasing. And so that's that's a good thing. And so the U.S. is is in a in a point where it's it's got some challenges to figure out uh, what the direction is going to be. And and uh, again, if we get rid of the nuclear power in the United States, what really replaces it, and how long does that take? And uh, that's and how much? And that's that's the uh, the real important questions going forward. So Elizabeth, uh, how can uh, the audience uh, reach out to you for more information? about your work and, and your views on the uh, the sector? Oh, they're welcome to straight email me. I'm at eke at olemiss, O-L-E-M-I-S-S dot E-D-U, or you can visit my website. Um, it's easier just to search for me. I'm in the Department of Civil Engineering, and uh, it's also helpful if you let me know who you are and what your interest is as well. I'm kind of all over the place. So you just let me know, and we'll be happy to talk. Well, Elizabeth, I really appreciate you coming on to take the extended time with us today and, and go over these issues. I think that uh, we covered a lot of ground, and, and I think there was a lot of good points made, and, and really appreciate your insights into energy and, and nuclear power and, and infrastructure in the United States with related to energy. Um, anything else you'd like to say or mention to the audience? All opinions are my own, and no one else's. How that? <laughs> Well, Elizabeth, it's it's really been a pleasure, and I really appreciate you taking the time with us today. All right. I appreciate it, too. Thanks, Andrew.